All right, gang, if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it up to Matthew chapter 21, okay? Matthew chapter 21. See what happens when you're a few minutes late? You wind up on the front row. The front row. That's almost like spitting section. I'll try to be very careful. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. I'm super glad that you're here. We are in the middle of a six-part series entitled Fairy Tales because the reality is that uh, there are those in our community, people I know, people you know, I have family members who believe that what I believe about Jesus Christ and what I embrace regarding this book is nothing more than a fairy tale. And so what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to challenge believers to think and challenge thinkers to believe. And we've talked about a lot of things. We started out with a very basic question, is God real? Does God exist? We talked about the existence of God, and some of you were very surprised to find out that there are some of the brightest, most educated minds among us in science that will tell you there is more evidence in the universe supporting the existence of God than there could ever be denying his existence. Then we talked about truth, the importance of absolute truth. Does it exist? Can we know it? How do you know you're right? How do you know that something is wrong. And then last time we talked about the reliability, inspiration, and value of this book. Today we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, hypocrisy in the church. Do you understand that there are people that do not attend Grace Community Church because they know some of you or they know me? Do you know that for decades, if not centuries, I suppose, skeptics outside the church have pointed to believers inside the church and said, there, that's the reason I don't attend. It's our hypocrisy that keeps many from becoming even curious about what we say we believe and the person in whom we believe. Now... Over the past several decades, we've all been exposed to blatant hypocrisy. Many of our most famous public figures, heroes even, men that we idolize, we hope our children grow up and be just like them, have been exposed to be fraudulent on one level or another. And as sickening as that might make you feel, as disappointed as you may, that man right there was my hero in elementary school. Nobody could run the football like O.J. Simpson. But as difficult as it is for us to accept our public icons fallen from their perches, fallen from grace, it's even more difficult when men like this fail. Because there's an added element to the failure. The added element is religion. You see... It's one thing to fail morally in front of a nation. It's another thing to fail morally when you've been a mouthpiece for morality to the nation. When you call yourself America's dad and you don't act like a dad, shame on you. When you're a religious leader and you promote family values, family values, and then you're unmasked as immoral, some of your deeds or actions have been perverted, corrupt, it's very difficult. It's a strange juxtaposition when you think about it between success and failure, 
between honor and dishonor, it's like there's this fine line. You can build a lifetime of good work in our community. You can promote your movie, The Passion of the Christ. Millions of people worldwide can be moved by your portrayal of Jesus from Nazareth. But then all it takes is one slip up. All it takes is one misspoken word. All it takes is one bad action or bad choice, and everything seems to come unraveled. Now, I know people who don't attend this church, or don't attend the church in their community, or don't attend a church of any kind, because they ran across a deacon one day, or they knew a church elder one time, or They had a run-in with a public leader in the church who did them dirty or did them wrong. I want to be very, very clear about one thing. If you have, God forbid, ever been abused by someone who called themselves a man of faith, I am truly sorry. If you have ever been taken advantage of by someone who used their integrity as a smoke and mirror to kind of trick you into something. I, I, I truly am sorry. If, if you know someone who has been taken advantage of or abused, I want you to know I get it. I want you to know I get it. Because there are many, many people outside unwilling to come inside because of us. Dr. Timothy Keller who's a pastor up in New York City, he wrote a book entitled The Reason for God. And if you know a skeptic, I'd I'd strongly suggest you buy this book. It's probably a 15-year-old book, but I've got it in my office. Now, not to give to a skeptic, but for you to read for yourself. Dr. Timothy Keller wrote the book The Reason for God, and in it he writes, many people who take an intellectual stand against Christianity, they do so against the background of personal disappointment with Christians and churches. In other words, the problem with Christianity, the problem with the Bible, the problem with Jesus to a skeptic is hypocrisy. I mean, how can people who claim to be enlightened live such darkened lives? Well, that's a very good question. And I'll agree with you. It makes me sick as well. Again, If you've done wrong or been done wrong by a person in the church who claimed to be a follower of Christ, I am truly, truly sorry. There was a church uh, about three three decades ago in Las Vegas, big, big church, mega church. They, They came to be known as the We're Sorry Church because they thought a great advertising strategy would be to lease a bunch of billboards around Las Vegas. And and you'd be driving down the highway and the billboard would say, We're sorry for the Crusades come visit our church. Another one might say, we're sorry for slavery. Come visit our church. Another one might say, we're sorry for the sex scandals in the church. Come visit our church. The fact is, there are many, many. You might have a brother-in-law. You might have a family member, a co-worker who'll never set foot in this building because of us and the flaws they, fl- they find in our nature. I get it. I'm sorry, but listen, I got a little newsflash for you. Jesus hates hypocrisy even more than you do. Jesus hates hypocrisy even more than you and I do. You realize 
Jesus reserved his most harsh criticism for the hypocrites in the New Testament, for the Pharisees who claimed to be one thing, but were something totally different. And again, if you're skeptical of Jesus, if you think all of Christianity is unbalanced and fraudulent because you've had personal experience with someone who is a hypocrite, I just want you to think things through for a minute. You may have it all wrong. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, you know, I played Eli Manning on my fantasy football team last week and he went out there and stunk it up. I'm done with the NFL. Never heard anybody say that. I blame the rules of fantasy football. Never heard anybody say that. If one of our big hitters on the Braves, first baseman, uh, Free, Freeman, uh, Acuna, if, if they go into a slump during the play, God forbid, they go into a slump during the playoffs. <laughs> but if they go into a slump during the playoffs, you don't turn off your television. You don't blame the rules of Major League Baseball, right? Well, the same idea holds true for Christ and his church. Because I may have wronged you, because you've been wronged by someone who called themselves religious, that's no reason to see Jesus Christ and his church as fraudulent. In your program, I gave you the, the three sticking points to most skeptics. When it comes to hypocrisy, and you talk to somebody who doesn't want to come to church because of all the hypocrites in the church, they always talk about these three things. The first one is character flaws. Character flaws. Why are there so many, and sometimes it feels like many more, righteous people outside the church than there are inside the church? And do you get the connection that a skeptic makes? A skeptic says, by walking in here on Sunday, you're saying you're better than most people. That's what a skeptic thinks. By attending a church, you are proclaiming yourself righteous, holy. Why is it that there are equally as many morally upstanding, fair-minded men and women of integrity outside the church as there are inside the church? Furthermore, if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably got a story or two. You've probably seen some hate-filled bitterness and backbiting. You've seen fighting and division. How could that happen in this arena? One of the big sticking points for a skeptic to Christianity is the fact that we're not perfect. And if you're going to embrace religion, isn't that the point? To be better than the rest of us? No, that's not the point. James chapter 1, verse 17 says this, every good and perfect gift comes from God. That means that everything good in the world came from a loving, gracious, and generous heavenly father. Not just things inside the church, but everything around the earth. All the beauty in the earth comes from God. God, without being a respecter of persons, without a bias, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter how, how much you were educated or not educated, God gives liberally things like beauty and wisdom, things like compassion and grace and skill and ability and talent. He gives graciously, he gives evenly, dispersing these things from God to all of humanity not just believers, but to all believers and skeptics alike. So that means that <laughs> based on that idea, there are probably as many flawed people in the church as there'll ever be outside the church. 
And there are probably as many gracious, loving, and kind people outside the church as we'll ever know inside the church. But you need to remember something. The church has never made it a point to promote our righteousness, at least not the true church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this. It is by grace that you are saved, not of yourselves. Paul is saying, we don't get to God, our creator. We don't find good standing with our father, our heavenly father, based upon our righteousness. It's by God's grace that we gain that position and are sealed in his love for all of eternity. In fact, one of the reasons I believe this book to be inspired, to be from God, is that men who penned the words would never be this hard on themselves were it not for God speaking through them. You understand Christianity has never, ever tried to hide the moral failures of its servants. We know the failure of Abraham in vivid high definition because we have it right here. We know the failure of Moses, the great leader of men, because we have it in high definition right here. We know the adultery and the murder and the perversion and the corruption of David, of Saul turned Paul, of of the failure of Peter, the apostle. We know it all because Christianity has never been about shining the best light on us. It's been about shining the best light on God, who by his grace saves people like us. So you know what that means? That means that it only stands the reason that our churches are going to be filled with broken, selfish, immature people who have a long way to go in demonstrating their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a skeptic to Christianity and you're watching online, don't let my character flaws keep you from considering Jesus Christ and the principles of Christianity. The logic is flawed in that reasoning. Here's another reason. Because of all the war and violence... And I don't want to be a part of your church. In fact, I don't want to be a part of organized religion because look at the blood on the church's hands. Have you ever heard of the Crusades? (laughs) Are you aware that the Christian churches in Christian nations throughout the history of the modern world have embraced war? We have embraced violence. We have embraced institutionalized corruption and greed. We have embraced slavery and bondage. An atheist or a new atheist especially, a skeptic to Christianity, is going to say, I'm not interested in that because the church has blood on its hands. You see, an atheist believes that religion by its very nature is divisive. I mean, religion by nature divides people. It pits one group against another. The very ideals and principles that exhort, that encourage one group, challenge and threaten another. You see, when I stand here and I say that I believe Jesus Christ is the one true God and only way to the Father, well then by definition, by default, I'm saying that means I don't believe that. And I don't believe that. And I don't believe that. The church has had blood on its hands. The church has been guilty of gross immorality, of gross corruption. 
But I want you to keep something in mind, church. All men are guilty, not just Christianity. All religions have shed blood. All religions have embraced corruption. All religions have fallen for greed, not just Christianity. Also remember that non-religion, secularism, can be equally, if not more, dangerous. I mean, stop and think about this for a minute. Who shed the most blood in the history of the world? Modern man. We're not going back to cavemen. We're not going back to savage men. We're talking about 20th century men. Evolved. The best we can be. Think about this. The Russian communist revolution and the blood that was shed. The Chinese communist revolution. The Cambodian uh, communist revolution. Ever hear the Nazis? The Nazi revolution. All 20th century mankind shedding enormous amounts of blood, facilitating unspeakable suffering. Oh, and by the way, go back a little further. Ever hear the French Revolution of the 18th century? Off with their heads, right? These were societies that pushed out God, that made Christianity illegal. Some of the most prolific bloodshed, the most reprehensible violence, all embraced by secularism, massive violence, without any influence of religion, especially without Christianity. Obviously, the church should abhor violence. Obviously, we should take our stand. We have been guilty. But please understand, so has everyone else. Here's number three. This is probably the one that gets under my skin the most. Fanaticism. A big reason that skeptics won't embrace Christianity or even want to talk about Jesus. The reason to some skeptics my faith in each is nothing but a fairy tale is because of all the religious crackpots that are out there. The fanatics. Those smug, self-righteous, even dangerous fanatics who call themselves Christians or believers. In my opinion, that's the biggest deterrent to the growth of Christianity. In my opinion, they're the folks that make my job more difficult. They're the folks that make your job of trying to share your faith with a skeptical brother-in-law or co-worker more difficult. It becomes their cause to speak out angrily and loudly and proudly with their signs and their megaphones and their hateful emails and their petitions against Hollywood or against the political left, or against evolutionists, or against homosexuality. Well, now look, I get it. I get it, because that makes me sick too. And I get that if I were in your shoes, that'd be a big hang-up to keep me from investigating what those people say they believe. (laughs) But let's talk about it for a minute. You see, there's a problem. There's a problem in your logic. Here it is. Authentic faith does not equal piety and self-righteousness, so stop thinking that it does. Stop thinking that authentic faith means we grow into fanatics, religious zealots, hateful and abrasive. Christianity doesn't teach that. You see, Christianity does not teach that because I am morally superior to you, that somehow I'm righteous before God. 
You get that? Christianity does not in any form or fashion teach that because I'm on a higher moral plane than you, that somehow I've become righteous before God. In fact, the scripture says the exact opposite. It was the Pharisees who were called the hypocrites because they were the ones who claimed to be without sin. They were the fanatics. And yet Saul was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Moses failed. Abraham failed. Peter failed. And on and on it goes. Look, the reality is this. Those fanatics, it's not because they're too Christian. It's because they're not Christian enough. That's the reality. The fanatic that you see waving the sign, that just spews that hate-filled speech, that sits and stands in judgment of anything by which they disapprove. It's not that they're too Christian. It's not that they're the pinnacle, the zenith. Well, that's where we're all headed. (laughs) We're all trying to get there because they're so Christian. No, you've got it backwards. They're not Christian enough. Look, it'll always be easier to be fanatically zealous or abrasive or even hateful to other people than it is to be fanatically humble, fanatically kind, fanatically generous. And that's the call of following Jesus Christ. I want to read you something. It's a parable. It's one of many. Jesus, often when he taught, he used parables. You know what a parable is. We've talked about this. A parable is a story that everybody can relate to, but then it always had a deeper meaning. Uh, I love what the late Dr. Warren Wearsby said about parables. He said, a parable starts out as a picture It tells a story. Hey, look at the picture. The picture tells the story. But then it becomes a mirror and we see ourselves. But don't stop there. Then it becomes a window through which we interpret our reality. Such is the case in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. Now, Jesus has already entered the city. He's just days from his crucifixion. He came in riding on a donkey and everybody shouted, Hosanna. He's gone to the synagogue. He's taught at the temple. He had to run the money changers out of the temple. He said, get out of my father's house. You're making it a den of thieves. And all the while, the Pharisees, the religious elite supermen, the hypocrites, according to Jesus, were planning how they might entrap him. He has a conversation with them regarding John the Baptist's baptism. They go back and forth. He's going to reference it again. But in the midst of this, He tells three parables, and the first begins in chapter 21 and verse 28. Watch this. Jesus said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first one and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. So then the father went to the other son. He said the same thing. This son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Now, which of the two did what his father wanted? Now, that's clear. A third grader can understand this story, right? You got two sons. Son, I want you to go work in the vineyard. Absolutely not. You've been working us too hard. You realize it's 107 heat index today? No, I'll sit right here on the couch. Thank you very much. But later changes his mind and says, really, I should go. The other son, son, I want you to work in the vineyard. Absolutely. I, I, sir, you know I'm the good son. But he never goes. So Jesus poses the question to the Pharisees, 
the hypocrites of the day, which son did what the father wanted? And they answered the first one, just like you and I would answer. We get that, right? The reason we get that is because we understand hypocrisy. The reason we get that is because we know that it's really not what you say, it's what you do, right? You've heard this all your life, you know? Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks a lot louder than your talk talks, right? Everybody understand that it was the first son who eventually did the father's will because even though he said he would not go, he eventually did. Keep reading. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, stop. Do you know how vile the tax collectors and the prostitutes were in this culture? To a Pharisee specifically, if you were a tax collector, you were considered like a, a sellout to the Romans. If you were a prostitute, wow, you were the lowest of the low. See, watch what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Verse 32, for John, that's John the Baptist, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. Now, what was John's way of righteousness? Well, it was very, very different from the Pharisees' way of righteousness. Remember, John is baptizing in the Jordan River and up walks Jesus. Jesus is probably 30 to 33 years old, something like that. John stops. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to tie that man's sandals. There's the one you are to follow. What was he saying? He was saying to the Pharisees who ignored him, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes who listened, recognize your sinfulness, repent from your sin, follow the Messiah, enter these waters and I'll baptize you to make that public. That's the message of John. The Pharisees responded, or the Tax collectors responded, the prostitutes responded, but the Pharisees would not. Keep reading. John came to you, he gave you the way to righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Do you realize, not only does Jesus hate hypocrisy more than you, Jesus would define it differently than perhaps we would. Here's the biblical reality. Hypocrisy is a human problem, church. It's not a Jesus problem. Hypocrites exist because we exist, not because of anything Jesus ever did or, or taught. Christianity does not teach the more intense my faith in Jesus Christ, the more intense my hatred of all who are wrong or immoral or different in their practices. You see, in my mind, we need to take an honest look at ourselves. In my mind, it's very hard not to arrive at the same conclusion. There is something terribly wrong with me. There is something horribly wrong with us. If you have ever tried to turn over a new leaf or promised yourself you'd never do it again, only to have the frustration exponentially ratcheted up when you failed and you failed again and you failed a third time, then you know what I'm talking about. Well, you can say, well, nobody's perfect, but does that really solve it in your mind? Look, I debated whether or not I was going to share this publicly, but I'm going to go ahead. 
a year ago, it was a Friday night, and I was going to a Statesboro High School football game. Try to get around, see all the kids play in different, different schools and different games. And I was pulling into my favorite flash foods there on the corner of 301 in the bypass. I was going to get my Diet Coke and take it to the game. And as I pulled in, there was a guy cutting across traffic who was also trying to get in. And I realized he's cutting across traffic, so I'm just going to stop and let him get in. But for whatever reason, he took offense to what I was doing. Now, I don't know if he expected me to go on in, he'd go behind me or whatever, but I just stopped because he was cutting across the traffic, and I thought, well, let him have the right-of-way because this is dangerous. Well, he stopped right in the middle of the road, and his hand gestures got really big, and I could tell he was saying something to me. Well, I had had a really bad day. In fact, it had been a bad week. And I pulled up next to his car in that parking lot, and I got out, and before he could move, I was right on his window, and I said, do you want to get out and talk about it? Just like that. He said, no, I don't want to get out and talk about it. And he stayed in his car till I went in, got my Diet Coke, came out, got in my truck, and left. Then he went in. But you know what hit me immediately? What if that guy finds out I'm a preacher? <laughs> Now look, I can play that over and over in my mind, and he's in the wrong. He's in the wrong, that's why I was there to tell him about it. <laughs> but put yourself in his shoes for a second. What if he walked in that door on a Sunday morning and he saw me standing up here using this book trying to challenge you to find the best in yourself and in your faith as you follow Christ? What message would that send to him? Here's the message I hope it would send to him. They're hypocrites in this church, starting with me. And there are just many in here as there probably are out there. Because hypocrisy is really not a Jesus problem. It's really not a Bible problem. It's really not a church problem. Hypocrisy is a, is a human problem. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. So, here's a big question. What explanation exists for Christian inconsistency? How do you answer that question? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? <laughs> How do you resolve that unexplained phenomenon that the people we presume would be better than the rest of us aren't anything of the sort? Why are there so many insincere people in the house of God? How can you be so outspoken against immorality and then be unmasked as immoral? How can you be so outspoken against corruption and greed and be unmasked as corrupt and greedy? Well, the Bible says the explanation is depravity. We've talked about that word, depravity. We live in a fallen universe. Mankind is depraved. Depravity means moral corruption, perversion, distortion. You remember... When God created man, he created man in his own likeness, in his own image. Man in the beginning was like God, very God-like, therefore godly. But sin changed everything. Sin distorted the image of God in man. It perverted the image of God in man. It corrupted the image of God 
in man. That's why the Bible is filled with verses like this. Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Why? Why are all these true? Because mankind is depraved. We're broken. But church, this is not a story of darkness. It doesn't end there. It's a story of light. It's not a story of of hopelessness. It's a story of hope. It's not a story of death. It's a story of regeneration. Because at some point in our lives, we're presented with the reality. Good grief. I can't even live up to my own standards, much less someone else's standard. And again, I understand that nobody's perfect, but that really doesn't satisfy me. So the big question is, what will you do? Skeptic and non-skeptic alike, non-believer and believer alike, what, what will you do? How do you respond to the reality of you? You see, if man is not depraved, then all we need is a teacher. If man is not depraved, all we need is a do-over. If man is not depraved, then we'll get it right sooner or later, probably sooner rather than later. But that's not our world, is it? That's not our reality. Because man is depraved, we don't need a teacher. We don't need a guide. We don't need a do-over or a second chance. I need a savior. I need a redeemer to regenerate God's likeness in me. You see, here's why this is a story of light and hope even with hypocrisy. The universe has fallen. Genesis chapter 3 will tell you that. Mankind is depraved. A look at mankind and our history ought to prove that. But Jesus Christ died to totally revolutionize and change your life. So, I'll stand before you and say that I'm not the pastor I want to be. So you might call me a hypocrite. You might look at me and say, I'm not the dad I want to be. And so someone might call you a hypocrite. Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for those who thought they were righteous and never recognized their sin. Meanwhile, he said, the least among you, they're getting to God way before you. If hypocrisy in the church has kept you on the outside looking in. Let's talk about it. I'd love to have that conversation because I hope, as you can see today, there are good answers to some of those questions. Let's pray. Father, there's not one among us, I hope, in humility and with an open mind that wouldn't recognize we could do better. We could be stronger. We could demonstrate more kindness, more grace. We could be more patient with people who are difficult. Father, I pray that you'll make us at least sensitive to the reality that there are those around who are looking for those little things to give them good reason or good excuse not to come in, not to even consider your son Jesus. At the same time, Father, I pray for those skeptics. I hope they recognize that hypocrisy is not a Jesus problem. It's, a, it's an us problem. It's a man problem, churched and unchurched alike. 
And may they find, as I have found, the rich, fulfilling hope and satisfaction and contentment in knowing that while I'm not the man I would love to be, I am a child of the king. And all of this is not because of my works of righteousness. It's all because of your son and your grace. I pray it in his name. It's only because of him that I can say those words. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. Hope you make it a great week, and I'll see you next time.